Grab your Bibles, if you will. We're going to dive straight into the Scriptures. I know that you are a Bible-loving church, and that's one of the great reasons and the privileges that I have being here. We're going to go to Matthew, and uh, most of you would know that there are four Jesus stories, four different uh, laser beams, if you wish, by four different uh, recorders of this Jesus story. And Matthew is a particularly interesting one because he was a tax collector before, a.k.a. accountant, CPA. And so you find details in the text that are oftentimes not written in the others, and it gives us both a detailed historical narrative, but a weightedly spiritual and transformative one. If you're not used to the Scriptures, you just kind of find the middle, keep going to the right, and uh, if you go past, you will recalculate. All right, Matthew chapter 4, we'll pick up in the first verse, and I am reading from the ESV, which may be slightly different to the translation you have. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is not a Netflix fast or a Daniel fast or a vegan fast. Or this is like no food, water, by himself in a desert place, no people, the shouts of the silence of the desert echoing was his every minute of every day until another came to whisper in his ear. And the tempter came and said to him, If, after forty days of no eating, you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him, Physically or not, we're not sure. I think it was to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And their hands, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Temptation number two. Temptation number three. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Luke chapter 4 says, For an opportune moment. In other words, another time. I'll be back. And the angels came and were ministering to him. Lord, as we gather around the Scriptures, what a joy on a Sunday night to be gathering around the text and once again to be mesmerized by your beauty, your majesty, your boldness, your courage, your sacrificial surrender to a divine life, to live a human life just like us, and yet you never sinned. In order that we who do sin can find hope beyond our sinless disposition, sinning disposition. Grant us grace tonight as we gather around the Scriptures. Speak to us. We so dearly want to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. August 1996, Meryl and I and our girls who were 8 and 10 moved from South Africa where we'd led a delightful church for 13 years, planted it, this little bitty group that grew. It was fun. It was exciting. It was loaded with ignorance, stupidity, and error, and God was kind and merciful, and something really wonderful happened. It wasn't, L.A. was not our city of choice, 
but then God never asked us. And we landed with this broken community, a little bit like a seven-year-old abused girl is the picture that I have in my mind. There'd been three church splits, moral failure, financial impropriety. It was a mess. We landed there on a Tuesday by Friday. Now remember, we immigrants. We don't have a car, don't even have a toaster. We don't have a washing machine. We certainly don't have a house. On a Friday, the elders gave us the church. On Sunday, we were set in, and the church was ours. It was an absolute tumble dryer of culture and church that we found ourselves at times not knowing which was up and which was down. In the busyness and the confusion and the chaos of it all, I unfortunately was very sluggish to notice that as we bought our house and moved into it, that Dana, my second daughter, was, who is very prophetically sensitive, would have sleepless nights and speak of this dark being in her room. Meryl, my wonderful wife, who is equally prophetically sensitive, was also having nightmares and finding herself on many a night incapable of sleeping. But I, with this great man of faith, was incapable of discerning the moment until one night. I think it was a Tuesday night. She woke me up at 2 o'clock in the morning with a voice of desperation. Babe, you have to pray for me, and you have to pray for me now. I've had another nightmare. Now, I would love to tell you I was totally Christ-like, and I got on my knees and pled mercy. I jumped out of bed, nervous that I would shout and scream at her because I was exhausted and depleted and tired, and I didn't need this. And as I walked through the door of our bedroom, starting to go down the stairs into the lower half of the house, it was as if I walked into darkness himself. An indignation rose inside of me, which started with whimpering prayers, and this righteous indignation and authority started rising inside of me as I realized I was standing face to face with darkness. And I started praying to God and rebuking the devil at the top of my voice. I was not courageous enough, dear friends, to open my eyes lest I saw him, and so I stumbled down the steps and slowly and systematically took about an hour to pray through every room in my house every bedroom, every living space, and then opened the door. I have no idea what my neighbors thought, but I started walking the perimeter of our property, praying to God and standing and resisting the enemy. What on earth was that? What just happened? How was the freedom finally Achieved as my little girl fell asleep and my mother and my wife's um, nightmares began to subside. What just went down? John Mark has wonderfully and eloquently put us all, including Meryl and I and our little community, on a compelling way of living as an apprentice to Jesus. He speaks of us being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the work of Jesus. And so what we did is we as our little community started January 1 by reading through the gospel. There were 90 days till Easter, 89 chapters reading through the, f the four gospels, and we set out. And dear friends, when I got to, to this particular passage, Matthew 4, I had preached it many times, I'd read it many times, I could almost quote it to you many times, but something arrested me in that moment, and when God does to, that to me, I feel like there's a prophetic pause, I have something to say to you is what I felt the Spirit of God begin to direct me towards. Remember this, in 1 John 
3, 8, verse and 9, the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, if we are supposed to, and I quote, do the things Jesus did, surely one of them is to destroy the works of the devil. The enemy, the thief, John 10.10, comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. There is a personal demon. There is a personal demonic host. There is a personal devil who has an assignment against us to ensure our death and our destruction. Now, that is not a very cool subject. It's not very PC to talk about a demon, a demonic world. Tim Keller, the wonderful preacher, pastor from Redeemer Church in New York, I listened to him recently speak about this, and he said, in our secular, sophisticated palate, spiritual palate, we love the idea of an evil that may be psychological and personal. We understand it as a societal evil, but we cannot live with a possible reality that there is a supernatural evil. There is an evil that is not visible, evident, measurable, but nevertheless present. C.S. Lewis, thank you. C.S. Lewis, most of us know C.S. Lewis's writings, an Oxford Don, also a Cambridge Don, wrote the Narnia series, a philosopher, a studies of antiquities, the writing of ancient days, wrote this in his opening letter to the book, The Screwtape Letters. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. This is a, an intellectual man. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, these devils themselves, are equally pleased by both errors. The error of the materialist, there's no existence of a supernatural evil, and the error of the magician, an unhealthy preoccupation with darkness. N.T. Wright, many of you would have heard him, John Mark quotes him, as a delightful old British gentleman who was, um, I think he was, uh, he led a church up in the northern part of England, great author, speaker, a ridiculously sharp intellectual man said this, one of the key elements in Jesus' perception of his task was therefore the redefinition of who the real enemy was. The pagan hordes that surrounded Israel, including Rome, were not the actual foe of the people of Yahweh. Standing behind the whole problem of Israel's exile was the dark power known in the Old Testament traditions as Satan, Satan, or the accuser. The struggle that was coming to a head was therefore cosmic. Hence the subject, or my title is, A Cosmic Collision. And then Carl Bratton, a writer, a theologian, said this. He said, true Christianity is stuck with the devil. Like it or not, the decision for or against the devil is a decision for or against the integrity of Christianity as such. We simply cannot subtract the devil along with the demons, angels, principalities, powers, and elemental spirits without doing violence to the shape of our Christian faith and transmitted by Scripture and tradition our primary sources. Well, let's go to the text. What does the text tell us? It leads out by saying, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, I'm a lover of literature, and I always look for story. 
I'm a storyteller, I love narrative, and I love look, looking for the sequence, the progression of narrative. And so the moment the word now pops out at me, if there's a now, there's a then. And if there's a now and a then, there are stories to this. So I go back a few verses above, and there is this exquisite moment of the eternal union, reunion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the River Jordan. It's a glorious moment because the son left the father to come and be robed in the humanity birthed by a teenage single woman, and now he's living this life down here. And it's the moment we get this intimacy where the father rips open the curtain from heaven, and he looks down and he says, it's my boy. Hey, everyone, it's my boy. I love my kids. And one of the things I'm really grateful for is that all three of them have known my privilege of a date with dad. My eldest daughter is almost 32. She has four kids. They're church planted. She's off to college now to go and become a nurse. And when we were in Australia now, I took this gorgeous 32-year-old almost, and we arrived at a restaurant, and people think I'm a sugar daddy because I've got this, I'm this, this old bullet with this gorgeous little chick by his side, and I'm styling. I'm like, yo, what's up? Give us the best table. You know what I mean? But there comes a time there comes a time when I look into her eyes, and here is this gorgeous woman, and she is. And she is a mother of four, and she's a wonderful wife, and she's a worship leader. And, 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 and I look at her, and I hold her face, and I say, baby, do you know just how much I love you? And her big brown eyes normally fill up with tears, and she says, yes, Dad, I do. Do you know just how much I love you? Last week, I was in Costa Mesa with my second daughter, and we went to 2145, a new cool little pizza craft beer place, and we had lunch, and updated me on a trip to South Africa, and I on our trip to Australia, and I looked into her gorgeous eyes and said, Dee, do you know how much I love you? And her eyes fill up, as do mine, yes, Dad, I do. Then I'm an 18-year-old son. He's a surfer, long blonde hair, and he's at college. I said to him the other day, you know, his teenage years were not unlike other teenage years. I said, I just want to thank you, boy. He said, what for, Dad? I said, you know, your teenage years, you really improved my prayer life. <laughs> it's a pleasure, Dad. It's a pleasure. <laughs> but even recently, I took him, and he's, he's about as he's, he's similar height to me, the, Adam's height. He, and and, and I, I took his face like this, this strapping lad, solid muscle from fighting those two-feet waves in, in Newport. <laughs> and, and, and I, T, do you know how much I love you? And behind the question, behind his mind, those are my teenage years, and, and, and I know he's asking the question, I look, T, do you know how much I love you? You, you are my loved son. With you, I, I'm so proud of you. And I know sometimes you want to say, Dad, you can't be proud of me. And I want him to know, not in a sentimental Orange County way, but in a deep-hearted conviction, I love you and I am so proud of you. And ladies and gentlemen, this four-part narrative starts right there where God pulls the curtains from heaven and He looks at His boy and He says, Do you know how much I love you? You see, you and I cannot embark on the rest of this narrative unless we have that moment, unless there is the realization, forgive my passion, let me breathe. But, but unless you know that He looks, you can't flirt with Him. 
You can't kiss and cuddle, oh, I'll be back. When, when it suits me, I'll take a little bit of Jesus and maybe have a little bit of the Father, and then I'll go and do. You will never know the depth and the wonder and the privilege of the Father looking at you. I love you. And the wonderful identity that I am my dad's girl, I am my dad's boy. People say to me sometimes, didn't your son get irritated you call him boy? I said, not at all, because it's not a diminutive word. It's a word of enlargement. He's enlarged because of my love, and can you imagine how big he is? Because his heavenly Father loves him. The second sequence is this chapter, which we'll get to. The third is when Jesus emerges in Luke chapter 4 from this moment. And he comes out, and he goes to Galilee, he goes to his hometown, and he opens the scroll, and he reads the scroll, which says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are captive, to bind up the brokenhearted. Ladies and gentlemen, there can be no clarity of calling without the wonder of identity. You will live a life of uncertainty and doubt for all of your days if you try to bypass identity, father's affection, and simply jump into calling. Meryl went back, I mean, Meryl's only 42, but, but she went back to university at 52. She, she just forgets a few years every now and again. And, and so at, at 52, she went back from writing her degree 30 years ago in Africa and a pen on a piece of paper to a computer and a whole new world of therapy. And there were times, as we will describe in a moment, where the enemy came to her in this middle of the Oreo cookie, this middle part where the enemy comes in, and she had to stand firm because she knew that the Father's identity over you are my beloved girl. And then the clarity of calling, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because I have anointed you, Meryl Diane, to bind up the brokenhearted. And then the fourth component is what you've been studying, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the instruction of a life worthy of that calling. You can't do Matthew 5, 6, 7 until you know Matthew 3, this is my beloved son, my beloved daughter. Until you know the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Then Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I can do that in the grace and mercy of God. But what is this text? What does this Scripture tell us? I want to suggest for a moment that we use our imagination because I think this is a boot camp for Jesus that mirrors the cross. Bear with me for just a moment. Think about it, if you will. What happened at the cross that may overlap with this moment? The first we know is that this was outside of the city, the wilderness and Golgotha, number one. Number two, we know that it was um, darkness covered the earth, and this was not a climatological announcement. Oops, it was three o'clock Portland. No, no, this was a darkness that covered the... This is where evil is tangible, measurable, real, influencing, impacting, heaviness that comes with depression, anxiety, fear, concern, inability to win. The devil visited with Jesus. But I think also, this is a moment where the father had to let his son go. Monday morning... My son, I won't tell many more family stories, but it's relevant. 
My son's at college. He wants to transfer to another college. And um, we had a long chat about it on Sunday. But Monday morning, I'm down there just washing the dishes, kind of tidying up. Meryl comes down, and, and we start talking. And she says, um, well, how are you doing? And I said, you know T is leaving home. And suddenly, unawares from inside of me comes this deep, almost a wail. I mean, my wife comes and she puts her arms around me and nothing she does can subside this deep, overwhelming pain because in my imagination, I could see that Passat of his loaded with surfboards and if they're space clothes and, 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 and heading off to a new adventure and he was leaving home and there was, in, in that sense, nothing I can do about it. And I wonder if the same father who leant over his son and spoke such love and affection looked at the edge of the wilderness and said, you've got to go, boy. You've got to go. And you've got to go and win. You've got to go and win. You know, it's interesting in Mark's account of this, it says, and the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It's almost like the parallel, the cross and the moment. It's almost like that garden where Jesus said, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If it's possible, take this cup from me. And now the pre-runner, the boot camp to that moment is really, really spirit. Father, where are, Father, where are you? Spirit, are you sure? You put, are you sure? I'm not sure I want to go there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's no identity and clarity of call without this moment. And I want to argue, if I may, and I want to remind you that we do have moments where it seems like the Father has stepped back and His voice is silent. There's only two reasons for it. It's either because you and I are in deep rebellion, and we're not doing what God wants us to do, and like Job, we know it, Jonah, we know it, or it's the father standing back, as I will do when Tian pulls out and that Passat heads off to who knows where. I will wave him and I will goodbye. I will, I will tear up like I did with my daughter when she went to Oxford. And I waved as I left her going off to Heathrow to fly home. Tears, go girl. Mom and I believe in you, go girl. This is, I think, a go boy moment. This is God the Father saying, son, I can't do this for you. And ladies and gentlemen, part of our journey of maturity is facing the enemy and defeating him, and the Father stands believing in us, having confidence in us, but we have to go and do it. We have to go and face the issues at hand. Now, number two, the devil. I really don't like talking about him, and I have to say I preach reluctantly about Diabolos, the slanderer, the accuser. I hate him, the, the bottom, the core of my being, I hate him. I hope you despise him. If you pause for just a moment and glance at our disunited states, you will know why I hate him. But he has schemes and strategies against us. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We're not unaware of his schemes. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the schemes of Satan. Why? So that he could carry us and create a model for us to defeat this dastardly foe. You know, have any of you seen the movie Darkest Hour with Gary Oldham as Churchill? Have any of you seen that? All right. 
I hope you do. I think Gary Oldham's performance is absolutely remarkable. Churchill is one of my heroes. He, he, he had a, a big black dog, meaning he lived with depression and defeat. But there was the sense in his heart that one day he would be used in a mighty way to save England. It was, a, it was an incredibly brash sense. And any study or knowledge of English history will tell you just before the Second World War, from 1935 to 1939, Neville Chamberlain was prime minister. And Neville Chamberlain was a gentleman, a quiet man, a man who sought to bring peace and not a combative man or a man who would take on forces of darkness. As Hitler began to emerge, this dastardly demonic tyrant started to emerge in Germany. Churchill was one of the only leaders who was prepared to stand on the public parliamentary stage and declare this is a foe who cannot be appeased, but a foe that has to be defeated. He was laughed at, he was scoffed at, he was chased out of parliament, but he was prophetic enough to realize this was not a policy of appeasement, but an act of combat. The story works its way out. Narrative, a little light, marvelous performance by Gary Oldham under the notion that Ed Hitler could not be defeated through appeasement. I have a young friend, uh, Tony Rainbow, who's an Aussie pastor. I wish I could do it as hilariously and eloquently as he. But he tells the story in his 20s how, as a new church planter, what he did is he literally had a peace agreement with the enemy. I don't know how he did it, but he describes it hilariously. We put up the white flag to the devil, and he said this. He said, I will not preach against you if you leave me, my family, and my church alone. And he drew a line in the sand, and he said, you don't cross this line, and I will not cross that line. And he put a white flag up. He said, the problem is the enemy is a liar, a deceiver, a thief, and a bit like Spanish soccer players, he kept moving the line. <laughs> Oops. You see, ladies and gentlemen, our silence or our quest to be PC is not in any way empowering to this adventure that we're on in which the enemy Satan, the slanderer, Diabolos is our foe that needs to be defeated. And he has strategies that works, and that's why Jesus had to go out there on his own. The, the, just before we moved here in 1996, we'd given our car away, we'd put all our furniture on board, and it was somewhere over the open seas, and we went on a vacation into a game reserve. A friend of mine lent me his brand new BMW, and I thought I was styling. I had the windows down, playing the music. I had this boy, gorgeous wife next to me, my little girls at the back. Everyone that came past, I kind of, you know, yo, this is me. This is my jam. This is how I roll. You know, it was a very, very cool last few weeks together. We were driving along a, along a particular stretch of dusty road next to a ravine that was, that was full of bush and shrubbery as the African landscape often is, and the little dusty road took us into a herd of impala, beautiful creatures. We knew there was an agitation because the scouts were barking. Their heads were up, and the rest of the herd were on tippy doe. Something was going down. We could see it wasn't a lion because there was no place for a lion to hide. A cheetah could spring up and take them down. They were not evident. A leopard, you'd never know he's coming. He would kill you before you knew he was there. Something else was happening. And as we were driving slowly along this pathway amidst the herd, two hyena broke ranks, broke through the, 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 uh, the, the undergrowth, and kind of... <laughs> as they cackled, this dastardly, raw, crude cackle. 
What happened was this herd scattered. What do you think, love? Was that pretty good? <laughs> Not good. Should I do it again? See if I can... No, I won't do it again. I'm tired. And, and, and the herd scattered. And, and two things happened. The one, it seemed as if it was in slow motion. As these antelope, as these beautiful impala, turned to run away from the hyena, saw the car, and my head, I thought, I've just got to explain to my buddy, remember the new BMW you had? There's an impala stuck in it. But they gloriously leapt over the car and around the car, and the hyena came and put its head up. And then I looked, secondly, to see their strategy. They were not looking for the strong scout or the big male with the big horns. They scattered the herd so that they could pick up the fringe and the fragile and the broken and the hurting and the limping. They were clever. And as I saw that, I thought, that's how the enemy works. That's why Jesus had to go alone to defeat the enemy. But my dear friends, what happens in a world of rampant individualism is we think we can beat the devil by ourselves. It's not without reason that God said in a perfect world it's not good for man to be alone as he complemented and completed the two into one. It was for a reason that Jesus sent them out two by two, buddies together on global assignment. But this rampant individualistic thing that we live in, I got this, I got this, it's easy. And the enemy rubs his hands with glee and he says, of course you have. You are such a good little impala, aren't you? You know, it was amazing. I remember having moments in the car with the little girls, my girls at the back, and you'd come past and you'll see a predator there, and, and for some reason, maybe a, little, a mother with a little one or a limping one or an aged one would be separated from the herd, and the girls would scream at the back, get back to the herd, get back to the herd! Because alone they were vulnerable, and in the herd they were protected. Isn't it interesting that the Scripture says in Hebrews 10, 24, forsake not the gathering of the brethren as is the case of some. I learned that in the King James in 1977. Forsake not the gathering of the brethren as is the case of some. I was chatting to a church planter yesterday morning on the phone, he said, Chris, isn't it interesting? The average American church attendance now is 1.8 per month. Under two gatherings, that's not community groups, life groups, or anything. it means under twice a month, the average Christian goes to church. I got this. I got this. Isn't that interesting? That the average Christian in America right now changes church every 18 to 36 months. I don't need community. I like Bridgetown. Oh, I know, it's getting a bit boring, but there's a new cool church that's across the town. I'm going to go and try that one out. Ladies and gentlemen, did God not say He puts the lonely into families? Not into gatherings, not to meetings, not cool, sexy, groovy places. He locks them into families where we do life together, and you see me at my best, and you see me at my worst, and I love you anyway. I care for you anyway. That when I'm successful, your voice is loudest. I've just written a blog on friendship. Your voice is the, or my voice is the loudest because I'm with you and in the fight. And when I'm in the abyss of defeat and destruction, it is my arm that holds you. It is your arm that holds me. But oh, the hyena loves the herd that can easily be scattered. And the individual Christian says, I got this. 
What were the temptations that he took Jesus through? I think simply the three of them. Number one, he finds the moment of greatest weakness. He finds the moment of greatest weakness. Hebrews 2 verse 14 reads, Christ took on human nature that through, the, through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Ladies and gentlemen, when we are at our weakest, what does he do to my eight-year-old little girl? He just sits in the corner at night when she's trying to sleep and he breathes his death and destruction in the room. She's tossing and turning. New kid, new school, new culture, new church. Leave behind family, friends, safety, protection. (sighs) 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 He watches when we're tired, when we're weak, when we are vulnerable, anxious, uncertain. And that's the moment. Monday we had about five or six church party couples come and spend a day with us. Thank you, my love. And um, one of them, we were talking around these things. I said, what's the devil's strategy against your church? And they kind of looked at me. What do you mean? We've raised funds. We've got a band. We've got a school hall. We've got a core group. And I said, what's the devil's strategy against your community? And Tom, one of the church planters from Temecula, with his wonderful wife, Ebony, said, you know what happened to us the other day? He said, my kids aren't sleeping. Strange things are happening. Ebony's awake, nightmares. And he said, I went to pray for her, and as I knelt to pray with her, and there were only two of us in the room, a toy was picked up and thrown across the room. And he said, I got you, Satan. We're in combat here. You know, I know I'm an older guy, and I know that you like playing video games too late and not sleeping. I know all that stuff. Can I speak as a father? You are at your most vulnerable after midnight. That's when there's more pornography viewing. That's when there's more drunkenness, abuse, addictions. And I'm not being a grumpy old guy. I want to love you, and I want to protect you from the works of darkness, because that's where the hyena comes, when you are tired exhausted. You wake up in the morning, oh, there's no time for a devotion. I haven't got time for Jesus now. I'm running. I'm running. I've got to get to the office or to school or to university or to... Just say, I've got you. Number two. The enemy takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for what is written He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's my simple comment. The second temptation He threw at Jesus is this. Is God truly trustworthy? Come on, stand on the pinnacle. What do you think? Well, if it was me, I'm swooning because I hate heights. He says, jump. Father will catch you. Maybe. If you're the Son of God, maybe God will catch you. Come on, come on, jump. See, because he sows moments of doubts that God isn't fully trustworthy, and so we manage our lives, we control our lives, we take everything under our wing, because fundamentally, dear friends, we are not sure we can really trust him. Meryl and I went to see a financial planner, a new guy, long story I won't bore you with, but he sits us down in his suit, accountant, CPA, he said, okay, now tell me, what's your budget? I said, I don't have a budget. I've never had a budget. Um... Um, so, so how do you do your finances? I said, no debt, faith, and generosity. <laughs> so, oh, 
Um, um, okay. And then I was a little naughty. I said, you know, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I've once in the 40 years I never tithed. Once when I was a student, I didn't tithe on my student loan, and I thought, that's not good. So I started tithing on my student loan. See, fundamentally, it's not, hmm, are Christians supposed to tithe? No, no, the question is, how trustworthy is he really? If you're the Son of God, can you trust him? Thirdly, and I've got to land. Whom will you worship? Weakness, trustworthiness, and worship. He said, come on, just worship me a tad. Two quick things. I think I've got six minutes according to that clock. Whom shall you worship? We know the issue of idols, and it's easy to know what your idol is. Just look at your checkbook. Your checkbook will tell you. Look at your planner. What do you adore? What do you love? What do you give time to? What's important? What's a priority? That'll tell you. It's not difficult. But there's another one which I think is a little more compelling, and that is this. I wonder if Satan didn't say to him, listen, Jesus, you know the stuff, the kingdoms, and the authority, and the glory? I, I, I can give you all that. All that you've got to do is say, Satan. That's all you've got to do. And what I will do is we will bypass the cross. You won't have to go to the cross. I will give it to you. Because the cross will give you, but I will give it to you without that. And I'm sure in a moment of humanity, Jesus' mind flashed because there were crucifixions all the time. His mind flashed and thought of the butchery and the bludgeonry and the torture and the death and the incision of knives and the beating and the crown of thorns. All of that pushed aside. Satan. See, ladies and gentlemen, in order for us to get to our place of calling clarity, it starts with the identity of the father saying, this is my son, my daughter. But you have to go through these. Weakness, worship, and trustworthiness. Every night when I go to sleep, not every, sorry, sorry, most nights, sometimes I'm too tired, I start on the perimeter of our property, the car that's parked in the street, and I say, Lord, this is the car you've given me. I thank you. And I just put your protection over. The enemy can't get it. It's not going to get stolen or damaged. And then I come and I pray around the perimeter of our home and the rooms and whoever's staying in the home at that moment in time. And I just say, Satan, you have no right of access. This is mine. The Father has given it to me to be the ruler of our exercise authority. You have no right to be here. I speak scripture into those places. Satan, you have no right to be here. It is written. It is written. It is written. And then I take authority. Not every night. I don't have to deal with the devil all the time. But there comes the moment when I see the little, the little schemes happen again. Meryl's not sleeping. There are nightmares in the house. There's uncertainty, vulnerability. Trust is up for question. Oh, I don't know if we... Oh, oh, we can't trust God now. No, no, no. <laughs> Satan, this is your tactic. You tried it against Jesus. You've tried it against me. Now you're waiting for another opportune time. You're going to try it again. You're not going to get it right. I'm weak, but you're not going to get it right. I will not worship you, and I will trust my Heavenly Father. Shall we pray together?
All right. I'm going to hand over, I think, to Bethany in just a moment. Can I ask this of you? Can we be bold tonight? I'm told this is a courageous group. If you have felt the enemy has had a field day with you, he's beat the heck out of you. You feel like you've been eight rounds with Mike Tyson. I know it's a 1990s illustration, or maybe Holyfield, and you feel beat up. Now, anywhere you turn, there's darkness, there's defeat, your body is sore. Tonight's the night. Let's draw a line in the sand and say, no more, Satan. This is not my normal. This is not my new normal. That is my abnormal. I will not live by that. I'm going to ask you to stand. If the enemy's got it right with you, you feel pummeled. You feel alone. God's felt like at a distance. His voice has been quiet, and you feel like you've been in the wilderness ring, and you have taken a pounding. Father, in the precious name of Jesus, we come in no other name. We have no other authority but in Christ. A life lived, a cross redeemed, an empty tomb, the blood that was shed on our behalf, that is the only authority we have. I look upon this room of young men and women, and I am furious. The enemy has got it right with them. Our silence sometimes on the issues of darkness has made us vulnerable to the quiet, subtle, nuanced bombardment of an endless enemy whose commitment is our destruction. And Satan, in the name of Jesus, and in partnership with the eldership, the pastoral team in this church, we stand against you. You have no right over these men and women in the name of Jesus. You have no authority. You have no access point. You have come in subtly like a flood. You have gently wanted to seduce destroy, um, undermine, defeat these precious men and women. You have come like a hyena to scatter the herd, but tonight we say this herd will stick together. These men and women will be together. This is a congregation God has joined together on mission and assignment, Satan, and you have no right of access. We will not back down from you, and we will address you, and we will defeat you in the name of Jesus.